0: You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.
1: Welcome, Welcome to Unemployed, unemployed workers, workers Fight back, back. back. Join your hosts and...
2: And Kevin, that's me.
1: The second and fourth Friday of each month on The Sewer Show.
2: Between 5.30 and 6.30pm.
1: Here on 3CR Community Radio. Radio.
2: This is a show where we explore macroeconomic solutions
1: for the unemployed and underemployed. Everyone Everyone in in our our community community has value. value.
2: Welcome to Unemployed Workers Fight
1: Back. Anne, how are you doing? Hello, Kevin, and hello to our listeners, Larry and Larissa.
2: Nice to be coming out of winter a bit now. It was so yes. bloody cold during um, July. It's nice not to be there anymore.
1: Yeah, blue days, blue skies.
2: Well, bluish sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> speaking of people who have to deal with all sorts of strange weather, I was speaking with an economist the other day.
2: Who? Pray tell.
1: <laughs> an economist by the name of Wayne McMillan who lives up there where the Greater Sydney flooding was happening. Ah,
2: which which one are we up to now is, it, is it flooded again since uh, since last time? It's gone from being a one in a thousand year event to a one in a hundred year event to once a year event to almost once a month event.
1: So so you have to get really used to moving sheep around. I think up there. Oh,
2: could you ever get used to that? Oh. I I don't think you could ever get used to emptying your house out, replastering, rewiring. Oh, I know.
1: Oh, yeah, but Wayne was great to speak with.
2: I'd be very interested to hear what uh, Wayne has to say.
1: Yeah, well, let's have a listen. I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to speak with Wayne McMillan today. Welcome to the show, Wayne. Thank you, Anne. I feel like I'm extra privileged to have this opportunity because I understand that where you're located is where the recent flooding has happened in the Greater Sydney area. So how are you going?
3: Um, I'm okay, but it's uh, very difficult to exercise my dogs, uh, particularly one younger dog. One of my hobbies is sheepdog trialling, and a lot of my colleagues, their properties have been flooded. They've had to move stock, those that are on acreage, to high ground as quickly as possible. You
1: just go to high ground. Yeah.
3: <laughs> to the highest ground on your property, and or, or to someone else's property, a friend, is on higher ground.
1: Wow. Well, you and I sort of crossed paths online. Been amongst the discussions around heterodox economics. So I thought this was a good opportunity for me to get to know you as well as our listeners, Larry and Larissa. We reckon we've got at least two out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do know that you have a Bachelor of Economics, but I don't know a whole lot about how that's played out for you as a career or an interest.
3: Okay. Well, I was brought up at Westmead in a housing commission suburb I grew up basically in a single-parent family. My mother was on a very low fixed income. We had a a very uh, conservative Catholic upbringing and went to Catholic schools. But um, I didn't tend to like the school really that I went to a lot. I wouldn't call myself a juvenile delinquent, but I certainly um, wasn't the most well-behaved child sometimes. So at 15, I decided to leave school without a school certificate. Mm -hmm. And I, I worked in whatever work I could find. At age 17, I got into an upholstery company called Lazy Boy International that made the Jason recliner chairs. Okay. Until around about 1973, 74, when Australia had its first major recession since the Great Depression, Mm. we had chairs packed up everywhere. We had a huge big storeroom that was packed right up to where the sprinklers were, And even the general manager's office was packed with chairs. We couldn't sell them.
1: That is what I hear economists call um, unsold inventory.
3: (laughs) Yes. um, As we got into 74, more and more people were laid off. And I was eventually laid off and unemployed. Mm -hmm. So I guess I understood what it was like to be unemployed for a while. There was high unemployment and I was probably about 18. And it took me a little while to find another job. So I've always sort of had a sort of a soft spot, particularly for youth who are unemployed. Mm. And trying to find work.
1: Were you facing the social stigma of the Dole Bludger back then?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. I did find a job working for a veterinary vaccine company, but I had a love of animals and some of the things that they did with animals there I didn't particularly like. Mm-hmm. It was just sickening, you know, I, uh, so I left there. Eventually I got a job working in the Commonwealth Public Service as a clerical assistant um, and that wasn't a bad job. I learned a few things over there
1: that's another great example of how a fully functioning public service is a is a great employer yeah yeah
3: around about 1980 or 81 i went to sydney tech to do a welfare work certificate course Mm -hmm. i was very lucky to come into contact with the brother of a well-known journalist who'd also been a journalist himself and he'd been injured in during the vietnam war he had a glass eye and a prosthetic arm the man was quite brilliant and um, he took the economic component of our welfare work course. Of course, being the person that I am, I kept asking lots of questions (laughs) about inflation, about other things. And he said to me, well, if you want to know in depth about these questions, why don't you do a degree? I said to him, I don't even have a school certificate. He said to me, that shouldn't stop you. (laughs) So at age 27, I got into Sydney University and decided I'd probably do a combined degree. I did the first year of social work, the psychology, and then decided I wasn't going to continue. I felt that social work was just band-aid work, and Mm. I wanted to do economics, so Mm. I studied economics. Always I'd had an interest in economics, even when I was at school. I did a lot of reading, even as a teenager, from 15 to 18. I mean, I was very interested in socialism and in Marxism, so I had some exposure to that. But um, I never really uh, looked at economics, except from a very conventional mainstream uh, point of view. Then when I got down to Sydney University, I found out that there was what we called a political economy story. Mm-hmm. There were two influential lecturers. One was um, Ted Wheelwright, his nickname being Red Ted, <laughs> uh, who was a giant of a man. He was about six foot six and he was very much in the mould of the American economist John Kenneth Galebraith. The other economist was an Englishman who'd been out in Australia since 1970 by the name of Frank Stillwell, one of the best teachers of economics that I've ever encountered.
1: So what school would Frank Stillwell have been part of?
3: Frank would be in the heterodox school. Uh, Frank did his PhD over in the UK, and he He'd gone through and did orthodox economics, but he was disillusioned with economics. I think in the 1970s, right across the world, but particularly in the UK and in parts of the United States, there was a, a backlash against mainstream economics, neoclassical economics. And it was Frank who introduced us to a whole range of different ideas and, and Ted.
1: I guess you would say you were quite lucky to encounter those kinds of people because they would be very rare in economic schools these days.
3: There were pockets of them. I mean, down at Sydney University, look, I was involved in what we call the political economy disputes. There were demonstrations down there and I was involved in those. I'm not going to name drop (laughs) it. Uh, They are well-known politicians um, who were involved at the time. Mm -hmm. But still I had to do some mainstream subjects and I had to pretend, you know, Let me say this, that I wasn't completely convinced that heterodox economics had everything, and I knew that neoclassical economics had flaws. But I was heavily influenced by a lot of the neoclassical economics when it came to financial markets and institutions and other subjects. But I realised, because of my own experience, my life experiences, that basically the heterodox camp had brought up some basic flaws in the theory and in what really happened out in the real world, not what happened uh, down in the ivory towers of academia.
1: You know, that's one thing I keep hearing over and over as someone who has not studied economics and, in fact, probably until about 2014 had absolutely no interest. (laughs) Mm. So I often think back to the Anne of 2014 and how she would have never read the economics part of the newspaper or anything like that. And what really has surprised me is how the profession, like the discipline of economics, is almost medieval. Like It's got so little to do with reality. That's what I keep hearing over and over. I
3: think it's got a lot to do with the fact that the gatekeepers are in the mainstream. And neoclassical economics is the foundation upon which some of the newer forms have developed, like New Keynesian economics, Mm -hmm. um, even monetarism that... Uh, Milton Friedman built the theory with others. That comes from the neoclassical framework. So it has been in in the dominant position for well over 50-odd years. Mm. And, And they are the gatekeepers. They're the high priests of economics. They decide where your articles will be published. You don't get your articles published in the leading academic journals and what have you if you're a heterodox economist. They decide who gets positions, tenure at universities. When I was down at Sydney University, I mean, obviously in those days, modern monetary theory hadn't even been thought of. Mm. Most of the economists in the heterodox camp were either in the institutionalist camp, the neo-Marxist camp, or the post-Keynesian.
1: That's another thing I've discovered with economics. There are all these different schools of thought with all these names that can get very confusing because... The post-Keynesians and the neo-Keynesians have very different
3: ideas about things. Well, it was uh, Paul Samuelson and Robert Solow melded together microeconomics with the macroeconomics that Keynes actually created. It's the post-World War II, you know, foundation there that they built. And from there, all the other economists then built off that. So the neo-Keynesians and the new Keynesians are neoclassical thinkers. The post-Keynesians are the true Keynesians the ones that followed Keynes and his insights, his monetary insights. People like Jane Robinson, who was influential over in the UK, who studied with Keynes, would have called those so-called neoclassical Keynesians as bastardised Keynesians. <laughs> she had a big argument with uh, Paul Samuelson and Robert Solo about capital and was called the Capital Controversies. Or the Cambridge Capital Controversies because she was at Cambridge University in the UK and Samuelson was in MIT Cambridge over in the in the mm. USA.
1: So it was the two Cambridges battling it out. Yeah that's <laughs>
3: right. Well
1: the, the, the controversies do get really heated and um, I came into this via MMT because it just seemed so logical to me that you didn't even have to understand a whole lot of economics. So I'm wondering, tell us what your origin story was with MMT. It wasn't
3: easy for me, let me tell you. I had to jettison a lot of my thinking. (laughs) Um, When I first discovered, I guess, the beginnings of modern monetary theory, I was a big fan of two economists. One was Raja Jananka at the University of Western Sydney, Professor Raja Jananka. And the other was Professor Bill Mitchell at the University of Newcastle. I was interested in labour economics, and as far as I was concerned, they were the two outstanding labour economists in Australia.
1: What era are we talking now?
3: The 1990s. At one time there was a discussion. My old professor, Frank Stilwell, was in the discussion about debts and budgets and things like that. And then I also saw something written by Bill Mitchell, which actually turned everything upside down. You know, these ideas about budgets having to be balancing and having to be in surplus.
1: You came across
3: Bill before you came
1: across MMT.
3: (laughs) They did, yes.
1: That's that's probably pretty unusual because, of course, uh, Professor Bill Mitchell is a known name on this show as one of the founders of modern monetary theory.
3: There was another economist I was also very keen on, and that was John Quiggan. So the the three of them were, were like the holy trinity to me. (laughs) <laughs> uh, when I first actually went to Bill I said to Bill this doesn't make sense it's nonsense mm-hmm. and he said to me you just think again Wayne go over again and think again mm-hmm. so I've still got some more finer points to learn and Bill's and others and Randy Ray and um, also Fidel Kaboob and here in Australia Stephen Hale and Phil Lord I, I take my hat off to them I'm still learning. So at this point, would you
1: call yourself an MMTA, or um...
3: I would call myself a, a, a supporter of modern monetary theory, but I don't think that you know uh, modern monetary theory can answer all the questions to do with economics. Mm-hmm. But yes. I do think that when we're looking for a lens to see how money operates in an economy and the interactions with other organisations or agencies, it's the best that we've got I can't think of any other theory that allows us to see what's really going on what is really going on Mm. not what we think Mm. in some hypothetical (laughs) model and I had a discussion with my old uh, professor Frank Stewell last year sometime it was called politics in the pub and we had a discussion and Frank was never a supporter of modern monetary theory and eventually at the end of it he said modern monetary theory Wayne look is a theory that it's time has come It's time has come. I
4: guess the conclusion that I come to is that um, economic theories are always many and varied. But uh, if, if you apply the test of what works, it seems that modern monetary theory is an approach to understanding the economy and prescribing policy. Whose time has come? Time has come.
1: Economist Frank Stilwell in a conversation with Wayne McMillan, as hosted by Politics in the Pub, 19th of October 2021.
4: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au.
1: I guess as an MMTR, I would now say these days that if you want to understand how the macro economy works, you need to understand how money works. And um, I was just wondering if you would agree with that.
3: I definitely agree with it.
1: Wayne McMillan.
3: Mm -hmm. I think that uh, modern monetary theory gives us the best lens. I haven't come across any other theory that tells us about macro monetary reality particularly I look at some of the work that Warren Mosler has done he's actually provided us with some practical understanding of how the banks operate and bonds so we're looking at a whole picture and we're looking at how central banks operate how they interact with the private banks what are the connections what's happening there between them how Treasury uh, federal treasuries operate and work with these other agencies like the central bank and the private banks Uh, how interest rates are set, the stocks and the flows of money through the economy. I can't think of any other theory that gives us a better understanding.
1: Yeah, the average person who is not going to um, fall down the economics rabbit hole (laughs) and maybe, you know, doesn't even want to spend a few hours on YouTube, what would you say would be the minimum understanding you would like to have someone have about how the economy works?
3: The first thing I think is important to understand that federal budgets, and we want to call them that, I probably call them uh, fiscal finance, mm-hmm. the way that uh, governments spend at the federal level, are not like household budgets or like a state government or local government budget. You right. do not have to tax before you spend at that level. Mm-hmm. We can always spend before we tax. Why do we have the capacity to do that? Because in countries like Australia, the UK, Japan, the United States, we're sovereign currency issuers. That means that our government issues the currency and they can always provide the currency. That is, the central bank can always provide that. We don't need to have to tax first.
1: Well, why is it that you can always supply it? And I think one of the things I've started to understand is because money is not a thing. You know, most people's first experience of money is when mum or dad hand you a, a $5 note and say, go buy the milk or something. And so you just think of money as a, an object. But really, money is more like, I guess, an accounting process. And so it's just numbers. So you can never run out of numbers any more than you can run out of money.
3: That's that's so true. It's the real resources that a, a country's got rather than, uh, you know, the money. A country that's blessed with a diversity of resources like Australia and the USA, well, we're very, very fortunate because that's the most important thing. Obviously, countries that don't have those resources would have to import them.
1: So then the main ideas are that a federal government is not like a household, despite what we often hear from politicians. You've got to balance your budget, we've got to balance our budget.
4: Think about it here in Australia, what, what we've lived through over the last uh, 30 years or so.
1: Economist Frank Stilwell.
4: A succession of federal treasurers telling us that good things that we would like to have happen, you know, better health, better public services, better transport infrastructure, uh, better policies to embrace climate change, these things can't be afforded.
5: Uh, My job is to paint the true picture uh, of the economy and our economic challenges.
1: Treasurer Jim Chalmers, speaking at a press conference on the 18th of July, 2022.
5: Uh, When it comes to the trillion dollars of debt that we inherited from our predecessors, that is becoming more and more expensive for us to accommodate. That's just the reality. Uh, But we take our fiscal constraints seriously. Uh, A trillion dollars in debt costing more and more to service uh, means that we have to be up front with people. We can't do everything that we would like to do. We can't even afford uh, the good ideas that people put to us. That's just the reality.
4: In other words, uh, the argument is, Been typically that uh, governments should balance the budget, or better still, um, run a budget surplus, because then there'd be like a business that's making a profit, and that's surely a good thing, is it not? Um, I I think, Wayne, you've very clearly explained the fallacy in that reasoning, uh, because It it, it was always uh, a budget deficit fetishism rather than sound economic reasoning. Modern monetary theory might help us get on the right road rather than stay in this terrible prison of uh, successive governments shackled by this budget fetishism.
5: We take our fiscal constraints seriously.
6: Oh, yeah. Uh Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
4: That prevents uh, good things happening.
1: And then the other main idea is that the money is not what you could run out of or not have. It's actually the real resources that you can run out of or, or not have.
4: Indeed, Stephanie Kelton in her book says, let's stop worrying about the budget deficit of governments and deal with the real social deficits that need to be addressed. Her her list is the deficit of good jobs, the deficit in adequate savings that many households uh, have to grapple with when trying to deal with risks and and, uh, provision for retirement. The deficits in healthcare, in education, uh, particularly problematic in uh, the United States where Kelton comes from. The deficits in infrastructure, you know, broadband, waste, water treatment, public transport uh, and so forth. And of course, the huge deficit in expenditure on climate change.
1: Economist Frank Stilwell.
4: And I've come to see that modern monetary theory is actually a very good way of explaining uh, just what is happening in the financial sector and in the processes by which governments fund their own expenditures.
1: So that's a really good basic orientation.
5: This is Bill Mitchell. You're listening to my favourite Melbourne radio station 3CR with Anne and Kev, Unemployed Workers Fight Back program. Great program. Great guests. (laughs)
2: Uh, The the Labor government's been dancing to the neoliberal tune for quite some time because it's been forced into that position. My understanding is that... uh, While the coalition and conservative parties embrace neoliberalism, Labor's been captured by it. Uh, It would prefer not to, uh, and I know this because I know lots of people in the ALP, uh, but they kind of have to. If they're going to win an election, they have to dance to that particular tune. Mm. That tune's getting a bit old. It's um, it's going out of fashion, um, especially (laughs) the debt and deficit part of it. Got to go back to Abbott and remember that the main issue when he came into government back in 2013 was the debt and deficit disaster that Labor had created that was going to end the world as we know it. That tune just doesn't ring true anymore.
7: Um, The only reason why this government has been able to spend uh, is because of the fiscal inheritance that it had from Peter Costello and John Howard.
1: Then Leader of the Opposition, Tony Abbott, back in February 2010.
7: Australia is in a very sound fiscal position by comparison to other countries. Nevertheless, the way this government is mortgaging the future to fund a spending spree is utterly reprehensible. Um, What Mr Rudd chose to do was to spend his way out of the crisis, and we're much more indebted than we needed to be. Debt. Default. Mortgaging the future. Debt. Debt, default, mortgaging the future, mortgaging, mortgaging, mortgaging the future, the future.
2: And Labor don't have to dance to that tune anywhere near as much as they used to mm. because of the enormous deficit that's been rung up since, and that's a good thing. Mm. So we'll see how Labor go, see if they can't control um, the response to that.
1: Mm. Well, speaking of that, Kevin, I've got a present for you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Here it is. Have a listen.
6: What I see from the part of the Murdoch um, media, and this is a position which has become more intense over the last decade or so, is an overriding Murdoch political philosophy, which is this. One, do everything you can to prevent a Labor government from being elected. And two, once they are elected, if you can't prevent that, do everything you can to get them unelected as quickly as possible.
1: Former Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd on the 7am Daily News podcast from Schwartz Media, the 28th of June, 2022.
6: Take, for example, the great debt and deficit debate. For God's sake, debt and deficit uh, effectively increased by a factor of five. Uh, under the uh, Morrison-Friedenberg government. When I left office, um, Australia's net debt was $184 billion. Now it's um, approaching $1 trillion. However, during that period of time, you will notice that effectively the Murdoch media rolled over and died and did not run the debt and deficit agenda other than election time and other than against the Labor Party, with spooky music in the background saying something to the effect that if you elect a Labor government... Debt and Deficit will rocket right out of control.
1: Labor hasn't balanced a budget in over 30 years. And can't say how they'd fund billions of extra spending in their platform.
6: This is to cater for deep fears and anxieties in the electorate about the state of the overall national economy. And so what I do have noticed, uh, even in the last month, is suddenly uh, debt and deficit has come back into the coverage, the mainstream coverage by Murdoch having happily let it slide.
1: It's not just your paranoia, Kevin, about well,
6: the Murdoch media. <laughs> uh, I've
1: got to say,
2: Kevin Rudd is not my, my, fa- my favourite um, uh, Labor leader in, in the world. No. Uh, but it was interesting to see that both uh, Rudd and Turnbull um, turned on on Murdoch and so when when you've got the side that's supposed to be representing the Murdoch press turning on it themselves you know that uh, he's gone too far <laughs> well he's gone he's gone way too far we've all known that
1: and we know that they've always been running this line that labour are bad economic managers because they run up deficits which is such a false narrative yep, yep.
2: <laughs> you're listening to unemployed, unemployed workers, workers fight back. back a show all about the economics and experience
1: of unemployment and underemployment here
2: on 3CR Community Radio.
1: Now back to my chat with retired economist Wayne McMillan. I don't understand why the neoclassical economists are saying that we'll eventually get to full employment. Like, what are they basing that on?
3: What they're saying is that, you know, wages are too high that's why you've got unemployment Mm -hmm. so when you drive down wages to the natural rate of unemployment which they think probably could be four percent or three percent so you don't get inflation because they believe that if you raised employment above a certain level that inflation would grow so they'd probably think well three percent four percent unemployment that's just fine that's okay we don't want to have inflation so unemployment's fine and look um 3 or 4% should be the acceptable social norm for unemployment. (laughs) So those people, that's just tough luck.
1: So for those of us who've experienced unemployment before, Wayne, (laughs) we're just seen as the uh, collateral damage from the point of view of these economists.
3: That's it. So what are you going to do with these people that are unemployed? Well, the problem is they're not prepared to take low enough wages. That's Mm -hmm. the reason why they're unemployed. We should give them the minimum amount of income while they're unemployed because they're lazy and they're not working hard enough to look for jobs and we put them through the most amount of hoops we can find so they won't want to stay on unemployment benefits and that they'll take any job, any job, Mm -hmm. at the lowest-paying wage that's out there in the market, even though it might be unsafe, it might be terrible to work under the conditions, no matter what.
1: So is this kind of thinking active within the new Labor government?
3: I've spoken to a lot of the major politicians and some of them who were well-educated in economics. When I say well-educated, it's in neoclassical economics, okay. (laughs) And the advice they're getting is also from neoclassical economists. Um, So they're probably prepared to accept some unemployment, certainly, and underemployment. If say, for example, businesses find that uh, the demand for the goods and services they produce is not there, then what happens is then um, if they're not investing, that means those people that are unemployed are not going to find work because businesses are not going to invest to create new jobs. Mm. You have to have money circulating through the economy And people have to be buying goods and services. Otherwise, businesses won't keep producing. So that's an important thing to remember.
1: And the neoclassical economists would actually not agree with this? It just seems like so obvious. How could they say it ain't so?
3: The neoclassical economists have got this great belief that all markets clear, whether it be the labour market. Oh, yes, there'll be unemployment, but eventually in the long term, it'll clear. That is the demand for labour and the supply of labour will be equal. In most cases what you find is the supply is greater but the demand isn't high Uh, and so as a consequence you've got unemployment or you have underemployment where people uh, are having to work two or three different jobs to get a decent standard of living. There's not enough demand, people aren't buying enough so they're not going to create full-time jobs, they're only going to create part-time jobs. You know businesses won't invest unless they can see that there is a demand for their goods and services. So there are orders being put in.
1: As ever when discussing unemployment on this show, we understand unemployment is created by monetary systems. Monetary systems are structured to create a need in people to work for the money. The desire for the money is what gives the money its value. In other words, monetary systems are designed to create unemployment. If there's not enough work to go around, the government has not created enough work. Another way of saying this is that the government hasn't spent enough. Or another way of saying this is that there is not enough aggregate demand. And certainly the banks create credit, which looks like the currency, it looks like money. But money flowing from banks to the private sector will never create enough work for everyone. So only the currency issuing government has the capacity and the ethical responsibility to create a job for anyone who wants one. Only an MMT style job guarantee can target that government spending to end involuntary unemployment and create full employment.
3: If you want more plant machinery and capital to be expended and the private sector is not doing it, then the public sector has got to come in and create it so there can be uh, more development and more jobs. And if we want the services that we need, if the private sector is not providing them, then the public sector will have to spend to create those services, create those jobs, and also create the economic and social infrastructure that we need, because the private sector is not going to do it. The private sector is only going to do it when it sees that it can make a profit Mm. and it sees there is a demand for what they're producing.
1: That was the first half of a conversation with retired economist Wayne McMillan in which we talked about the very different ways mainstream or neoclassical economists versus heterodox or post-Keynesian and MMT economists understand the phenomenon of unemployment.
0: I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle, and you're listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back on Radio 3CR.
1: There are many ways that you can keep up to date with 3CR news, events and programs. The 3CR website is a great spot to catch all your shows via audio on demand or scroll through our range of podcasts. It's also where you can sign up to our monthly newsletter, buy yourself a new t-shirt or check out archival audio from past broadcasts. Of course, we're also on Twitter at 3CR and Instagram at 3CR Melbourne. But don't forget our mighty AM band. Catch us anytime on 855 AM. Keep in touch, 3cr.org.au. Kevin, you and I like to look at macroeconomics and I do find that looking at unemployment and the causes of unemployment which is what these so-called employment services are, are trying to deal with. When you start looking at the causes, you really lift the veil on a lot of what's going on in the macro economy. There's this underlying fundamental political reason why unemployment seems to get held in place, and that's this idea that, Really, the capital class wants a pool of unemployed workers and what Karl Marx identified as the reserve army of the unemployed.
2: That's the purpose of having a, a nairu, um, mm-hmm. the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment, and that's designed to make sure that there's more unemployed people than there are jobs to be had, mm-hmm. which means you have to compete to, to fill that position. And if you've got a job, you don't want to make too much of a, um, a noise about it because things could be a lot worse. Um, you might find yourself as unemployed. It's designed to put downward pressure on wages.
1: Here is labour market political sociologist, Dr. Victor Quirk. Discussing the use and abuse of unemployed workers on our show back in December 2020.
0: If you were to have a caring, humane, decent system of support for unemployed people, then it would undermine the real advantage of having the pool of unemployed. And that is the purpose of having a pool of unemployed is to put fear into the hearts of the working in their jobs so that they fear the sack because they fear being unemployed. Mm-hmm. So, if you made unemployment a comfortable, secure, safe, and dignified experience, you would not be generating the fear of the sack in the workplace. Mm. So, not only do you have to have a pretext for creating the unemployment, you also need to be able to justify treating them inhumanely Mm. and that's why the thing that solved both problems in a way was the demonising of the unemployed and the construction of this Dole Bludger myth Mm -hmm. because you could be saying well we're dealing with unemployment, we're doing everything we can to bring down unemployment because we're bullying the unemployed as hard as we can go.
1: So having a humane unemployment system would defeat the purpose of having a level of unemployment.
0: Yeah, it's about managing workplace discipline. The reasons why when the boss tells us to jump, we jump. If you want to have a workplace where the workers will put up with difficult conditions, poor security, casualisation, all of those sorts of things, the fear of not having a job has to be made very salient. And the fact that that pool of people is sitting there undermines the capacity of workers in employment to organise and defend their rights and conditions. I mean, one of the conscious elements of this is the disempowerment of the labour movement.
2: And then, of course, the job services are so frustrating and, and horrible to deal with that you think, well, that they mustn't be very good at their job, but it depends what their job is. If their job was to actually help people find work, they'd be terrible.
1: Yeah, their uselessness is part of the deal because, as Victor was saying, the idea also is to make the experience of unemployment is as horrible as possible.
2: Yeah, why, why would the government do this? Why would the government create a deliberate pool of unemployed? It's purely to put downward pressure on wages. It was used as a union-busting measure to to take away the power of the unions, to take away the power of organized labor, because if you've got a pool of starved, desperate, unemployed people who will do anything for
0: a buck, to put downward pressure on wages. The bargaining capacity of workers is actually the thing that they're trying to manage. Mm -hmm. That's why you maintain a pool of unemployment. That's why there's always been fierce resistance to the establishment of full employment because of the fear that it will empower workers. Mm -hmm. That is what the nature of the relationship between unemployment and workers' bargaining power is.
1: Dr. Victor Quirk, who Victor was great, is a lovely guy and also a labour market political sociologist. And the other really interesting thing about what's holding unemployment in place, too, uh, something that I discovered through modern monetary theory, because monetary systems, by design are meant to create unemployment. Right. The monetary system is just a process for organizing basically how people get together and do stuff in order to survive. How, how do we organize all of our activity? The authority is saying, I want you to come and do all this stuff, and what they have to do is get people out of what they call the private sphere into the public sphere. And the way the government does that is it says, well, at the end of the year, you're going to have to pay me $100. And the people go, well, where are we going to get this $100? And the government says, come and work for me and I'll pay you 100 bucks."
2: The government creates currency. It controls people by injecting currency into the economy and pulling currency out of the economy. It does that via taxation. It does it via government spending. It can push it towards the private sector. It can take it away from the private sector. But so long as it has the ability to create the currency and take the currency away, it has the power to control you.
1: Yes? Yeah, to an extent, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess it's a point that some of the modern monetary theory people make, which is that when you've got people who say, well, how do I get the $100 to pay my taxes? You've got people looking to make money, looking to work for money. And what do you call people who are looking to work for money? Mugs. (laughs) Or unemployed. (laughs) We call them unemployed, Kevin. So anyway, the monetary system sits behind unemployment. There's also a technical thing that sits behind unemployment because what people can do to get the money is that they can either work for the government or they can uh, work for each other in the private sector And if you don't have enough jobs being created either in the private sector or the public sector, what's happening is you don't have enough aggregate demand. You don't have the combination of businesses and government spending enough to employ everyone. This is the technical reason why you have unemployment, is that there's not enough aggregate demand or what we would also call not enough fiscal spending.
2: Fiscal spending being government activity to... Create the aggregate demand that's required to keep people employed. Yeah, exactly. Yep.
1: And then the other thing is that there's this ideology that's sort of hiding all this. And the ideology is you mentioned that before this Nehru, the non accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. And this is this economic technical idea that's really ideological that you have to have some people unemployed in order to fight inflation.
2: <laughs> we, we have a large problem with that, don't we, Anne? This uh, using unemployment to keep inflation down. Some people will say that if unemployment is low and if wages are increasing, it can add to inflationary pressures. And it can, but it doesn't necessarily need to be the cause of inflation. It's one factor. It's too simplistic to say that low unemployment will create inflation. Mm. There have to be other factors at play. Mm. And as we've seen in the current world, when you have uh, supply-side problems, if there's a war and the price of oil goes up, if there's a disease and things aren't available, uh, then you have inflation. Mm. But if you've just got people uh, employed with a very low unemployment uh, rate earning good money, that in itself is not inflationary.
1: Mm. And I think one of the problems here is that we just have this one word, inflation, which covers so many different scenarios Like you say, there can be all sorts of different causes for inflation. And I think the economists do try and call inflation different things. So they talk about cost push and demand pull inflation. Yeah, And of course, the right-wing policymakers and economists always want to say that it's wages, but it isn't necessarily.
2: I'll give you a good example of uh, inflation in our current economy, which is quite specific, is that if you have a bunch of high-paid professionals who get paid more and more to make their businesses more and more efficient, which generally means putting downward pressure on their workers. So they'll get bonuses. So you have the managers in a company who might have earned, I don't know, 80000 back in the day, and they figure out that if they squeeze their suppliers or they squeeze their workers, they can uh, increase profits for the company. So they'll get themselves into $120,000 and then 250000 They might be up to three hundred fifty, half a million dollars a year. Those people then are given incentives to Offset their their tax liabilities with property, which is at record low interest rates. You create this inflationary episode where a certain section of Mm -hmm. of the community can push the prices of houses up so that they're no longer available for the general population. And that's something which has definitely happened over the last 30 or 40 years. The conditions have been tweaked for a specific part of the community to buy a house, buy an investment property, buy a holiday place take the tax breaks they get from the capital gains, from, from the negative gearing, etc. and then there might be a correction at the moment. They're not really subjected to that because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of their stuff is already paid off or they've got so many assets that there's no big deal to flog one of those to, to pay for the rest. Mm. Um, of course, other people get caught up in this and they're just um, regular ordinary working people on ordinary wages who pay a very high price for a house because interest rates are low and, and all they've seen is house prices go up and up and up, and then all of a sudden the Reserve Bank puts the uh, the rate up, they're the ones who are hung out to dry. The people who actually pushed the prices up in the first place, the high-paid execs and, and the uh, the high-salary earners, well, they can walk away pretty much scot-free because they've already made their money. They've got their properties. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a perfect example of, of a section of society that's caused inflation on a fundamental asset which is a roof over your head.
1: Yes, yeah, that is a great example of, a again, these neoliberal attitudes which turned a commodity or a necessary thing that people need, which is a roof over their heads, and they turned it into what's known as an asset. And once it became an asset, the price got pushed out of the reach of a lot of people. Yeah,
2: it turned turned from being uh, something which is necessary to something which is profitable.
1: Mm How did we get there? I don't know. How. We, all, we, always, we always end up back in inflation. Yeah, Well, macroeconomics, the two main things it likes to talk about is inflation and unemployment. So <laughs> yeah. you sort of always end up talking about inflation when you start talking about unemployment. Well, Anne,
2: you've done the heavy lifting yet again. I've been a bit of a passenger on this show, which happens occasionally. Uh, your competent research <laughs> and interviewing is always appreciated by my fine self. But we need to make way with a fellas coming up next or with, with Vicky. So... We'll see you again in a couple of weeks' time.
1: See you then, Kevin. You've been listening to Unemployed Workers Fight Back.
2: Join us the second and fourth Friday of each and every month as part of the Sewer Show on 3CR.
1: Listen to this show as a podcast by going to 3cr.org.au.
2: We thank all our guests, and I thank you, Anne.
1: And I thank you, Kevin. No,
2: no, the pleasure was all mine.
1: Oh, no, Kevin, the pleasure was all mine.
2: You mean all the pleasure was yours?
1: Kevin, I think I took all the pleasure on this one.
2: <laughs> well, if you took all the pleasure, that means I, there's no pleasure for me at all. i I oh. want to enjoy it myself. So if you've got all the pleasure, then what, I had no I had no pleasure?
1: I think we should share the pleasure.
2: <laughs> well, we're going to have to share the pleasure because, you know, like, I don't mind you having pleasure as well. you have as much pleasure as you well, like, but don't take all the pleasure.
1: Well, it was very pleasurable, so I'm glad that it was pleasurable for you. And it was pleasurable. I think we've got a multiplier of
2: pleasure here. That means it's doubly pleasurable. So if your pleasurable view is a professional animal, please recall they were twice as pleasurable as affordable.